You are listening to From the Midwest to the Middle East, the latest on U.S. tax, Israeli economy, and lots of in-between. Interviewing Israeli and international experts. Chicago, Chicago. Welcome to our podcast. I am Philip Stein, president of Philip Stein & Associates. Hi, I'm very happy today. Uh, post uh, the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, to have as my first guest, Barry Levenfeld. Barry Levenfeld is a colleague, an old friend, uh, who's a partner at Yigal Arnon. Barry has a wide-ranging technology and life science practice focusing on mergers and acquisitions. Barry serves on the board of the Israel Union for Environmental Defense and Aline Hospital and is a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. On the personal side, Barry is an avid biker and one of the founders and organizers of Wheels of Love annual charity bike ride, Israel's premier charity biking event. Well, Barry, thank you for coming on uh, and starting the new year on the right foot. Uh, Phil, thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you particularly for mentioning the Lynn Charity bike ride, which will be taking place in about a month and a half this year. And for anybody who's listening right. who is interested in participating, it's not too late. Okay, so maybe at the end you'll give, uh, if you have any, you know, how do people can contribute or sponsor. I know we, we've been a sponsor for years, uh, quite a few bikers, so we'll, we'll, give you, we'll leave that for time at the end. Let me start with our first question. Barry, you're one of the veterans of the Israel high-tech scene. How have things changed since the quote-unquote dot-com days? Well, that's a very good question. Um, the dot-com days were, I think, characterized primarily by tremendous increase in value of companies that in retrospect had no value at all. That rather than judging companies by their um, by the old uh, parameters of, uh, of making money, having sales, having profits, they were judged by sort of clicks and visits and, and things like that. And, uh, and it all collapsed as we know in around the year 2000. For those of us practicing in Israel, there was some confusion as to the causes of the collapse since it happened at the same time as the, the second intifada. And it wasn't clear if the, the dramatic decline in, in business was a function of local uh, military economic situation or of a global situation, whereas in retrospect it was clearly a global thing and not really based on what was happening here. Um, have things changed since then? They certainly have changed in certain ways in that there's many more companies that have real solid basis to them. However, there are things going on uh, in recent months that make one wonder if we are not entering some new bubble. Uh, recent transaction on the Israeli scene such as the sale of Waze for you know, over a billion dollars and the recent sale of uh, Trustier to IBM, which our firm dealt with for... Uh, uh, reported at over $650 million, uh, where neither of these companies, certainly Waze, has no uh, traditional indicia of, of that kind of value. So although I do think that it is a general uh, statement that uh, people have sort of returned to ground a little bit, there is now this sort of hype, especially in the app world, where, uh, where there seems to be value far out of proportion to, uh, you know, sort of the traditional indicia of value. Okay. That's uh, 
you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. So uh, that, that's an interesting insight. Would you say it's a myth that most Israeli startups only want to exit and not build their company? This is really one of my pet peeves. As you know, Phil, there's a public debate here in Israel in which uh, Israeli entrepreneurs and even more so Israeli VCs are accused of being there for the quick sell. And uh, the way the, the debate was phrased in the past was, well, why, why doesn't Israel have more Nokias? Uh, they don't mention Nokia anymore given what's happened to Nokia, but the idea was, you know, why don't we have companies that have become international global companies on their own right? And in fact, in all the many years that I've been doing this work, it's the same companies. You know, you have Teva, you have Amdocs, you have Checkpoint. You used to say Converse. You don't say Converse anymore. There's not too many of them that have become international in their own right. And, um, and people criticize this. I have a very different view. I think that what Israel excels in is creating companies and that it makes sense that at a certain level it, uh, those companies are run from global technology centers that have more direct access to the markets that matter and to the people that matter. And, for the, and so it makes good sense that, you know, Israelis, what they do well is they use technology, they create companies, and they, you know, they sell them off. And usually, in my experience, except for a couple times that you can count on less than the fingers of one hand, the, the operations stay in Israel. A lot of the money comes back to Israel. Most of the entrepreneurs go on to do it again. It's a very, to my mind, healthy environment and one that certainly other countries, and we're besieged all the time with people from other countries wondering, like, how do we do it? And so whatever is happening here, other companies don't, uh, countries don't look at Israel and say, ah, that's not interesting because they sell their companies too young. If you'll give me another minute on this one, because this one gets me all excited. Good. I, of we I like, often... We like yeah. exciting questions. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, I often imagine in my own mind the entrepreneur coming home to his or her spouse and saying, you know, honey, uh, you know, Intel just offered us $350 million for our company. And, uh, you know, after, after the whole thing's over, our take will be $28 million, which is enough for us and our children and our children's children. But I'm not going to sell because Israel needs more Nokias. <laughs> and the right thing to do is just to hang in there, even though next week Bill Gates could come out with a competing product that you know, drives me completely underwater or whatever. So you're dealing, I think, with real people facing you know, real decisions. And uh, the fact that they're offered significant amounts of money for their company I think is a good thing. And I don't think most people are creating the companies for that purpose, but they're not stupid. They have that in the back of their mind. But I think they all know that unless you build real value in your company, it's not going to be sold. So you can't focus on being sold from the, from the first minute. Okay, excellent. Really a very different take and a really interesting answer. Um, you've been involved in some of the biggest transactions involving U.S. and Israeli companies. You just mentioned one the other day, uh, a few weeks ago, that took place that your firm was involved in. Are there common obstacles or issues that tend to arise in negotiations when you have this U.S.-Israeli element? Well, um, one of the, the common things is just sort of explaining certain peculiarities of the Israeli business scene to the, U, the U.S. acquirer. 
uh, and whether we're doing that explaining uh, when we represent the acquirer or the target, uh, things like the office of the chief scientist, uh, things like the strange position taken by the Israeli tax authorities regarding the obligation of a foreign buyer to withhold taxes on payments made to uh, Israeli or even non-Israeli sellers. And so these kinds of sort of Israel particular things come up. Um, perhaps counterintuitively, on the bigger deals, uh, there's less tough issues because the bigger the deal is, the less any individual problem is likely to be material. In other words, when you're when you're dealing with a, a, a transaction that's over half a billion dollars, you don't mess around or spend too much time on an issue that's just a few hundred thousand dollars. Whereas when you're dealing with a much smaller transaction, those few hundred thousand dollars can can mm -hmm. can matter much more. And so, uh, you know, unlike what you would think, uh, sometimes the smaller deals are actually more complicated because everything is important. I see. That certainly could affect a lot of people who are listening to, to our podcast today. In my practice, I'm always amazed when successful Israeli entrepreneurs who have, quote-unquote, made it in America decide to come back to Israel to set up their next company. This seems to go against the American dream. What, what's your take on this phenomenon? Another interesting question. Uh, you know, this I think is we're outside the realm of business and law, and more in the realm of psychology, and perhaps of Zionism. Um, I would like to think, but this could be my Zionism and idealism talking, that as successful as Israeli entrepreneurs may be in Silicon Valley, that many of them want to come home, and they want to come back and use their skills here. Some of the most successful Israeli entrepreneurs have done exactly that. You take Eyal uh, Waldman from Mellanox, who was out there for a while, came back, established a company. Actually, in his company, Mellanox may be one that will one day join the ranks of uh, sort of Amdocs and Checkpoint as companies named as uh, Israeli global successes. Um, we also all the time see Israelis who are coming back here to set up their companies. I think that... Uh, <laughs> they want their kids to speak Hebrew and to grow up in mm -hmm. Israel, and that they can, uh, and if they can have their cake and eat it too, uh, if they can set up their company and uh, create value and 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 frankly, you know, get rich here as well as there, I think they'd rather be doing it here. Yeah, I, I think just sharing my own thoughts on this, I think. Israel Israelis are unique. I, I think that you, when I think of the Indian entrepreneur or the Chinese, mm -hmm. uh, those families tend to stay in America. Uh, they may go back for visits, but I don't. I don't think they want to go necessarily go back to live in uh, those places. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think that's very true. Let's look ahead again. We're starting with the new year. Uh, where do you see high tech, the Israeli high tech scene going? Do you see more crowdfunding, less ca venture capital? Do you see startups with more modest goals? I'm just using these as examples. Do you see more cooperation with the Far East and maybe less orientation toward the West? What, what's your what's your crystal ball say for, for the near future? Well, I, I think you've pointed out certain things that are, are clear trends. Let's start with the first on crowdfunding. Crowdfunding is a term that has various definitions. Uh, we're representing now a very exciting client called Our Crowd, run by the fairly well-known entrepreneur John Medved, which is, uh, if you would, uh, crowdfunding for accredited investors. 
he's not going after the ten dollar to hundred dollar fifty dollar uh, investor, but those that can put in at least ten thousand dollars and who uh, qualify as accredited investors in their jurisdiction of residence, whether it's in the United States or in Israel. They've already raised over twenty million dollars for uh, I think twenty six or twenty seven startups, and that's in about eight months of of operation. Clearly, this is a paradigm shift and is a threat, I think, to the traditional venture capital market. It's, uh, it's, it's attractive to the investor because they can put in just $10,000 and not a few million dollars or at least half a million dollars as in most venture capital funds. It's also attractive because you pick the companies you want to invest in rather than rely totally on a, a, a venture capitalist to make that decision for you. So I suspect that this and similar uh, funding platforms will indeed eat into what has traditionally been standard venture capital uh, territory. You add to that the sort of bad press that the standard VCs have had over recent years, all these studies that show that the returns that they make over like a decade are, are, are not much better or even worse than uh, just putting your money straight into the market or even putting it in the bank. Um, so I do think we're going to see a shift there. Here in Israel, we certainly see sort of no end to the number of startup companies and new companies coming along. So they're going to be looking for funding, and the VCs are playing are, are harder to uh, to get interested, and and people are more loath to take VC money. So I do think that's a trend we're going to be seeing. Um, you said startups with more modest goals. I would phrase it a little differently here. I'll tell you why I started it, because I've had some exposure to this crowdfunding, and it seems that these companies uh, do have more modest goals. They, you know, they, right. uh, they want less, they need less money, and they, you know, I think they're promising less of an upside. That's what it appears to me, but I, that's why I asked you the question. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think that's because of several factors working together. One is that it is actually easier to develop certain kinds of software and products because of all the development tools that are out there and uh, the fact that there's all these sort of development kits and open source software and, and, and ways that one can do things quicker and easier than, than what it used to take. The second is this whole world of the sort of app companies and this proliferation like mushrooms of hubs, accelerators, incubators, where you know, people are throwing small amounts of money, of money into projects with the hope of creating, as, as you put it, essentially more modest companies. Um, I'm not yet convinced that this is a model that works. You know, I, I don't know yet. You know, we, we are constantly being asked to represent accelerators, represent companies that are going into accelerators and the like. Um, I'm not sure if you can really build a company on a few hundred thousand dollars and, and get much out of it, but there are these companies out there that are you know, designing these apps. I was recently in Silicon Valley where they have the same, you know, the same uh, uh, phenomena going on where there's sort of these little micro-investments happening. And then also the, the jury is out as to whether this is a, a, a paradigm shift that's really going to create a new source of value or whether it's simply some kind of you know, passing, passing trend. Mm -hmm. um, other things I see going on, uh, or maybe it's just my hope, is uh, in, the, in the life sciences 
in Israel, at least, I think there's going to be a boost as a result, among other things, of, uh, of government action. I'm not usually a big fan of government intervention, but I think in the realm of life science, they've done some good things in sponsoring a, a big uh, life science fund, uh, Orbamed, to set up operations here, and they're injecting money in things, and also of having a, uh, a tender process for a big biotech incubator that is brought to Israel, uh, well, Orbamed is involved, but also Johnson & Johnson, and uh, the largest Japanese pharmaceutical called Takeda, which is uh, doing its first uh, uh, investment and activity in Israel. Uh, there are studies that, that point to a conclusion, again, it's hard to say how accurate they are, that um, Israel, well, the way they usually phrase it is that if you look at the incredible output of the academic world in the life sciences, and you compare that with the commercialization of products, that there's a real dramatic shortage of commercialization, that these things, um, there, there is room for a lot more life science companies around. And my hope is that things are going to move in that direction. I think we're seeing some some signs of that. Right, that's that's interesting. And and again, my last point. You know, the fame. I remember the famous uh, Supreme Court Justice, U.S. Supreme, William O. Douglas, who wrote a book, "Go East, Young Man." <laughs> uh, should I Israel be looking more east than west? Also, an interesting question. Uh, everyone's talking about it. Uh, we've seen little bits and pieces of it. Uh, there seems to be more interest of Japanese and Chinese and, and well, and more traditional from Singapore uh, investors coming here. Uh, Chinese are certainly interested in getting Israeli technologies. There's more joint ventures. Um, I think it has the opportunity to be uh, a major shift here. I don't yet sort of feel it in the day-to-day -day what's going on. But it seems to be a direction that everyone is interested in. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna test you. We'll call you next year, and we'll see <laughs> okay. how uh, how your predictions came out. Uh, do you think the army is still the primary breeding ground for Israeli high tech, or are there other places for skills and ideas to be grown? Well, I still think the army plays a, a pivotal role and a shifting role. Um, actually, as as we speak, I'm hopeful that my Sun will be joining a unit that's focusing on cyber defense, and uh, rumor is that it's a very well-funded unit where a lot of uh, resources are being uh, uh, applied. And and there's no question that, for example, Trustier, the company that was just sold that does internet security, uh, takes from the army. We had previously represented IBM in the purchase of a company called XIV Limited. XIV stood for the 14th graduating class of a particular army unit. So there's no question that there's a central place. Actually, one more story, Phil, because it's just so so Israeli. You know, I, I teach a course in high-tech corporate finance at Hebrew University. Two years ago, at the end of the first class, three guys in uniform come up to me, and they say, can we take the course? And I look at them, and it turns out they're from Talpiot, which is one of these super-duper computing right, units. Right. Mm -hmm. They're still in the Army, and they want to take a course on high-tech corporate finance because I guess they're thinking about their first startup. Wow. And so I, I say to them, well, you know, you're supposed to take, you know, you're supposed to have as a prerequisite for the course a uh, standard uh, uh, course on companies law, which they hadn't taken. And they said to me, uh, well, I'm sure there must be some 
textbook that we could just like learn companies law in the afternoon sometime. <laughs> and I had three thoughts in uh, quick succession. The first was what arrogant people these are that think that they can learn in an afternoon what took me a whole year of study and all that. The second was, I'm sure actually they can do it because they're probably way smarter than I am or anybody else here. And the third was that they could be clients one day, so of course they can come and take the course. <laughs> but you know, the, the, the influence of the army on all of this is just wild. You ask about other sources, um, I do think that's happening in several layers. First of all, you know, the, again, there's the, all the Israelis in the States and the Israelis coming back to the States, and I think they pick up a lot of this there. They come back with business and technical skills. Um, I also think more than ever the Israeli operations of the big global companies, uh, you know, the, the Intels and the Microsofts and the, now the, the Googles and the, uh, the Motorola's and IBM, uh, those companies, according to recent statistics, produced the largest number of patents being patented by Israelis and I think have become in their own right a uh, breeding ground for future Israeli innovation. You're very likely to see as, uh, you know, as uh, seasoned innovators people who are leaving those kinds of companies uh, and so I think that they are also uh, getting the skill sets they need to go on and start their own companies from from those uh, operations on the ground here in Israel. Well, I, I wish your your son a great success. I, I, I don't normally, or he certainly doesn't need a plug for me, Tom Clancy, but I think one of his uh, newest books is called Threat Vector, which I read recently, and, it, and it's exactly about this. It's about uh, cyber warfare and uh, actually the Chinese, uh, the, the, the chaos that could be brought uh, based on how we live our lives and how we defend our countries, and and everything is, uh, you know, electronic, uh, computer based, and uh, it 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 probably is as important as any piece of equipment that that a country has today to have good uh, cyber defense. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so we're getting to our, our last question. What advice would you give to some young, or I'm not going to be discriminating, older entrepreneur who, <laughs> who is listening to this podcast? Uh, my advice would be to go back to basics. I don't think they've really changed. You have your idea. You've got to gather a good team. You've got to work to create value within your company. I urge you to go out and talk to crowdfunders, VCs, and others, even if it's before the time you really need them, because you can treat that almost as a free consulting uh, advice. You know, you'll, you'll sit down with a VC, and even if they're not ready to talk to you or, or to fund you, they will talk to you, and they will give you advice and, and direction. Um, and to not lose hope. I think the money is out there for the good ideas, and I think the environment is still such that one can create companies. We, keep, we see it all the time in a relatively short period of time. And, of course, well, I would tell them to get good accountants and good lawyers because that's the, the key to success. You know? Of course. Of course. Right. <laughs> okay. So I promised uh, to leave a little time to, for you to give a plug for the Aline Wheels of Love annual charity bike ride. Uh, tell us first what, when it's taking place this year and uh, how someone can uh, either sponsor you or just contribute in general. Well, the, the bike ride is taking place at the end of October, uh, starting on uh, October 27th, I believe. And, uh, yeah, and it's five days. There are options to be on-road or off-road. 
There's also options to do it just for one day. It's the, as you pointed out, the leading Israeli charity ride. Uh, about half the participants are from Israel and about half from the United States and other countries. Uh, the website is www.alinride, A-L-Y-N-R-I-D-E, co-ill, and uh, people are urged to either to contribute to the hospital in any way or uh, to join the ride for the week or for the uh, for one of the one-day options, and we'd be happy to see anybody who's interested. And uh, people can also just email me directly. My email is barry, B-A-R-R-Y, at arnon, A-R-N-O-N, dot C-O, dot I-L. All right, this has been a terrific uh, half hour that we've spent together. I think my listeners will uh, get a lot out of it, and I think uh, it's going to be shared with a lot of other listeners or people uh, who are used to listening to podcasts. And we, we thank you, and we wish you Shana Tova. You should continue with success in all your endeavors, both professional and charitable. And, and thank you again very much, Barry. All right, and so thanks for giving me the opportunity, and I wish you and your family also a wonderful new I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.peacestein.com or look for Philip Stein Associates on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye.